Trainer's Trough, 001, November 17th, 2006. Hi there. You've downloaded the Trainer's Trough, the podcast for the nuclear training professional where the topic is heavy, but the treatment is light. Welcome. My name is Gary Van Voris. I'm the host of the Trainers Trough podcast and the webmaster of the TrainersTrough.com website that you hopefully probably downloaded the podcast from. First of all, my congratulations to you. This is Podcast 001. And if you found this podcast, you're a real podcast frontiersman because I certainly haven't publicized it very heavily except within that very unique audience of nuclear training industry people, uh, primarily through my good friends at the Middle Atlantic Nuclear Training Group. I told folks in Mantag about it and said, hey, I'm going to put the hog on the air, man. Have you heard the hog? If you got anybody that's got a, an iPod, let them know because I'm going to go live. Um, I suppose some introductions are in order. Uh, besides my name, which I already told you, I am a senior instructor and I'm an instructional technologist in charge of the training for trainers at the Millstone Nuclear Power Station in Waterford, Connecticut. Although my work there has little to do directly with the podcast, uh, except for the fact that it certainly gives me the interest and the involvement in the nuclear business. but. Just a little over a year ago, I decided that I wanted to do something both creative and something for the industry. And I myself at that point had pretty much given up on morning radio. Believe it or not, I have an hour and a half uh, commute to work. I, Because of a lot of confluence of a lot of factors, I live near the Massachusetts border. Even though my power plant's down on the Connecticut shoreline, I drive an hour and a half every day. And... What I started doing, I got an iPod, and I started downloading podcasts, and I would spend my hour and a half, or the better part of it each way, I'd listen to a little radio news, check the weather, and then I was, um, I was, I've turned into a podcast junkie. I would download podcasts from all different sources and about all different stuff, and that's what I used to uh, occupy myself on the way to work. And one of the things I went looking for is, well, are there podcasts for the nuclear professional? And when I Googled this last October or last September, there really wasn't anything out there except mainly websites for consultants who wanted to sell us something. I don't think there were any podcasts having to do with nuclear at all. Well, of course, now it's 2006. It's been almost a year later. I've been playing around with the equipment. I've been playing around with the idea. And it's been a part-time, very part-time hobby. And I took a look on the web, and I did find that there is a This Week in Nuclear hosted by a fellow by the name of John Wheeler, who I have not met or communicated with yet, but I'm going to, fellow podcaster. His focus is on general nuclear news, which is great, because as a nuclear trainer, my focus here is going to be on uh, nuclear training stuff specifically. And this podcast is not for the thousands of people who would make up a nuclear training excuse me, that would make up the general nuclear population, but rather is for those maybe hundreds of people who make up the nuclear training population. So 
If you're a nuclear trainer, this bud's for you. Uh, if you're a general nuclear worker, well, of course, you're invited to listen. But my target audience are people like myself who do nuclear training and who, if you're like me, are constantly looking for new ideas, new stuff to, to bring into the classroom and into your life. So that, that's what this is about. The first interview, and that, that's going to be my format, by the way. I plan to, for the most part, just do interviews with people. I'm not going to bore you with my voice, and I'm sorry that I've taken four and a half minutes to do this, but it's probably fair first out of the box for the first couple of shows to do some brief explanations. I um, I did an interview in, I think it was March of 2005, with a fellow by the name of Jim Armstrong. And Jim was a, a, a instructional technologist like myself who had just come to work for the same firm that I work for. And his kind of claim to fame was that he had come out of the academic world. He worked for a, a university in Richmond, Virginia, and he had gotten a fairly substantial grant or a couple of substantial grants where he had used the systematic approach to training, the SAT model, to take a look at, in his case, an English curriculum for college students. And instead of simply doing what most colleges do, and I was once a college instructor myself, where you were simply given almost unlimited latitude, department chairman gives you a course opportunity and says, okay, make up a syllabus, give me the syllabus before the semester begins, and that's that. You know, you're pretty much left to your own devices. If, uh, if, if Basically, if a student didn't come in and complain, you were pretty much on your own because I don't ever remember being observed in any of my teaching duties by my dean or my department chair or anything like that. Nobody ever came in. And um, so this was a huge difference for Jim because they were seeing very uneven outcomes for their students and they wanted to improve the situation. They got a grant to use objectives-based learning. Let's not just let the instructors play in the sandbox. Let's let the students and the faculty know what's expected of you in behavioral terms and then test against that and have really measurable outcomes. As you might imagine, that ran into more than a little resistance on the part of his fellow instructors. They, most of the instructional staff didn't think that was a very good thing at all. They were very comfortably used to their lives as professors, and they weren't very interested at all. But he had some wonderful success with it. They, um, they implemented the program in an English curriculum and saw almost immediately an improvement in test scores of students, and actually grades went up, and the meaning of the grades went up. When, when given objective tests, they were seeing some real improvement. The students and the instructors knew what they were up to, had a very non-subjective grading process going on, learning process, and it worked very well for them. He ended up actually being able to convert a couple of other people um, who might be mentioned in the interview. I know one of them was a fellow in the psychology department. One of them was a communications uh, person, communications instructor. So they've been moving the SAT process out into the organization. They've been doing more and more of it at the university. So with that in mind, Jim came in with a lot of credibility um, in, in the same kind of stuff that we do, and he was my choice for a first interviewee. And I was also interested, and you'll hear this in the interview, about what he might have seen coming in from the outside. Uh, here he is, a person new to the nuclear industry, 
well-grounded in instructional technology, the, the state-of-the-art in instructional technology and the development of instructional materials using the SAT process. I wanted to know what he saw. Was there anything that he could bring to us that we could learn from him? And um, so that's what I, what I did. I sat down. This is an edited interview. Uh, I think we rambled on for 40-some-odd minutes. And that wasn't really, a, you know, not all of it was pithy. And I notice I'm at 8 minutes and 36 seconds, so I, I hope you've put up with this for this long. But at least you're, you're kind of hearing the context into which this interview flows. And uh, I've edited it down to 20 minutes, 14 seconds, according to my little scorecard here. I'm using a program called Cast Blaster to, to do this. Uh, I've been with Cast Blaster for a long time, since the very beginning. And I'm, I'm actually email friends with a fellow Dutchman. Uh, it's a Dutch program who writes it. Good program if you want to get into podcasting. And um, so actually, kind of without too much further ado, let me click into the interview with Jim Armstrong and let you hear what he has to say, and then I'll be back. My guest this afternoon for this podcast is Jim Armstrong. Uh, good afternoon, Jim. Good afternoon. Jim, why don't you just take a couple of minutes and tell listeners a little bit about what your background is. Uh, obviously, they've tuned into this podcast. They know that we're all about nuclear training. You're fairly new to the nuclear training game. Give us, give us the background. Um, I started, as you know, in nuclear training only 10 months ago. And as a result of that, have learned quite a bit about how you guys do things in the nuclear world. And it's been an education for me because I'm coming from uh, 12 years in higher education where I taught English uh, the gamut of courses. You've moved into the nuclear industry. Based on your extensive experience outside of nuclear and now coming in and having had a really good opportunity at multiple power plants to see how we work on the inside, um, what's the lesson learned? What's, what's, give us some words about based on this, you know, you've come in the door from a different place and travelers from different places often can bring stories to the people that they visit about what it's like on the other side that we could learn from. Um, what have you seen with, the, with the, the nuclear folks who've been in it for a while, and what message would you bring us to improve? Well, let me first say, um, when I came on board here last June um, and began doing observations of classes, what I found was really terrific teaching by many, many of the guys at North Anna, and then later, as I've seen at Surrey and now here at Millstone, um, teachers who really uh, know their discipline, uh, and, and even though it's technical in nature, really, I mean, we've got truly, truly bright people uh, teaching some fair, very complicated material. I mean, it's all Greek to me, uh, from, from, from an old English teacher standpoint. I walk in and hear thermodynamics and all these things and I'm like, whoa, wow, okay. Um, so I've seen absolutely terrific training and I've seen uh, teachers who have terrific lesson plans and great objectives and uh, you know, my first thought was, God, why can't some of the teachers at Virginia Union come see 
this terrific stuff these guys do. You know, maybe it would start to you know bleed off and they would go percolate. away with yeah, it would percolate. Um, I also was was very impressed by the fact that um, you know this world expects teachers to be observed, expects teachers to improve, uh, uh, reviews their lesson plans. None of this took place. This world it, also has very demanding and vocal students. Yeah. Uh, in my experience, in in my days in higher ed, I taught mostly adults, and in a very specialized area, but. They were generally respectful, and, and uh, not that the nuclear students aren't necessarily respectful, but certainly my community college students were not anywhere near as demanding and had the high level of expectations that I found when I moved into the nuclear industry. I think you're probably right. Um, so, I, you know, I walked into a climate that I found refreshing uh, based on where I came from. Here, you know, you said to teachers when we started doing the pilots this year and said, you know, we're going to come in and do some observations. We're, you know, we heard a few moans, oh, Lord, moans and groans. Some were very open to it. But here, it's just expected. I mean, if you're going to be in the classroom teaching, someone may come in and observe you. And it's not to be critical of you. It's to point out your strengths and your areas for improvement so that you can become a better teacher. And all the teachers were very open to that. So... I found all of that a very refreshing thing. So to, to go back to your question, uh, there are some things here in the nuclear industry I think academia can learn from. Now, having said that, to answer your question, what, what can we do or what am I learning from the other side? What I'm seeing here with some teachers is the same thing I saw in academia, and that is a tendency to come into the class and be the center. I know all this stuff. You, Mr. Trainee or Miss Trainee, don't. So I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to show you a PowerPoint, and I'm going to talk. And occasionally I'm going to ask you a question to see if you're with me or not. Are you still awake? <laughs> or if you're still awake. You're following along. And this is very typical of college professors. They know all this stuff. The student doesn't know anything. I'm going to come in and tell him what he needs to know. And he's going to sit there and listen and take notes. So I see some similarities between the two worlds in that teachers have a tendency to want to lecture as opposed to involve their students. And so the same kinds of things I've been trying to get our teachers to do at VUU, I find with some of the teachers that I'm now working with in the nuclear industry, I'm trying to help them get away from that lecturing and get their students more involved. Let, let me ask you something. You already said, and of course I'm familiar with the tremendous complexity of some of the material we teach, where do we go with the fact that in, not certainly not in all cases, but in some cases our students come in and, and they don't know anything? And that tremendous tendency to think of them as these empty glasses that we have to fill up. You know, what, what do you do with the student who who doesn't really have much of a, of a context for this complex material. Where, where do you go with that? Well, certainly there's a lot they have to learn. And I don't mean that you're not going to ever lecture, that you're not ever going to present information. You are. You have to do that. But we also know from a lot of studies done in educational psychology that we're, we're, we're rethinking how people learn and acquire information. It used to be the old metaphor that you just said, the empty glass and the teacher's the pitcher 
of water, and he's going to fill the glass up, the trainee, with knowledge. And that metaphor kind of, you know, everybody kind of said, yeah, that, that's it. Uh, he's this passive vessel, and I'll fill him up, and when he starts to get to the tippy top, I'll stop <laughs> so he doesn't start to lose it all. Go home and study, come in tomorrow, do it all over again. Right? Um, the problem with that metaphor is what we're finding out from research done in educational psychology is it's not how the brain works. Um, it sounds nice. It sounds like, yeah, if you give me information, I'll retain it like a glass. That's not really true. What we find, and there's debate about this. This, this isn't, I mean, there's ongoing brain research as well going on to, to, to add to this debate. Well, of course, it's intuitive. We know how glasses get filled up, and so we make right. an intuitive leap to how brains get filled up. You are, you are so right. What we're finding out, though, is that people sort of construct knowledge. Um, they make meaning in their heads. The synapses begin to start to connect as a person processes information. And people process information that's given to them, if it's new information, they first try to relate it to experiences and knowledge they already have. Wow, you're, you're telling me about atoms, you know, split by neutrons? That doesn't make any sense to me. So I have to make it make sense to me. And I do that by trying to process that with experiences of life and knowledge of life that I already have within me. And then, for me, it might go quicker. My experiences might be different from the guy sitting next to me. My brain may be better at, at uh, assimilating that information. But what we're finding out is it's a construction of knowledge on the part of the student. The student is building that information in his head, consciously and unconsciously. And so in order to make that process accelerate, which is why we have that movement called accelerated learning, what all we're saying, all I'm arguing, and, and I'm not the first to do this, this is a wide body of knowledge, is you got to do it without having students be the passive receptacle and the teacher up there lecturing like a pitcher pouring information. If, if knowledge is constructed by on the part of someone, then you've got to get them actively involved in the material. It's new to them, yes. But if you can take new material, somehow relate it to their world experiences, give them problems, uh, exercises to solve along the way, where they're actively engaged with the material themselves, with their fellow students, and with the instructor, we can accelerate the learning process. What about time constraints? It, what you're saying here sounds like, wow, if I still have to pour all that water in the glass, but I've got to allow processing time or soak time or whatever you want to call it, don't I... Isn't that going to cause me to have to take more time to do this? That is the and you are a wise, wise man. That is the essential major dilemma of active learning versus lecture. One of the reasons why we go in and lecture is we got two hours and we got a stack of stuff to get through. And, I and it's the same in academia. It's the same problem in academia that we have in nuclear training. There's a volume of information you have to learn. You, gotta, you better get it <laughs> because we, we're... And in the training world, we're spending a lot of money 
to train you because you're being paid to sit here in the and, classroom and, and you're not doing anything. That's right. Five five mechanics at whatever <laughs> per hour. It's it's a it's a hefty per hour. Class. So so the fallback is I can lecture this information, get it to you that way in two hours. Whereas if I got to go and do this all this active learning stuff, man, and, and get students involved, now you've increased my time to four hours or whatever. And I, I, I sympathize and understand the dilemma. My answer to that is, which way do you want it? Do you want to, whew, God, two hours, well, we got it all in, there it is, it's done. And, you know, they might have retained, if you're lucky, a third of that information. Two-thirds just went right in their head and out the door. Um, or do you want to take the extra time and increase that third to two-thirds or whatever so that you have a better trained employee? That's the question companies have to answer, training departments have to answer. I, my, I know what my answer would be. I think it's worth the time. But I also understand that teachers can't make that decision, or trainers. They're very often told what to do by management. Do we have the numbers that would prove that if we use more active learning tools, that in fact these memory gains or these proficiency gains, you know, if we, we're in, big into performance and not just knowledge, so do we, do we have the, the research that would back up improved performance based on, on these different learning techniques? Not only do we have the research, we have volumes of research. We have research out the yin-yang to support the concept of active learning over passive instruction. Um, to cite just one, uh, which I was talking with you about earlier, the Chickering and Gamson study that was done in the late 80s, which was a pretty expansive study across many universities where they looked at teaching habits of a lot of teachers. When they actually went out, observed classrooms, looked at grades, looked at tests, and found that um, the best teachers uh, in terms of how their students are learning are those that do the active learning, involve the students, give prompt feedback. They don't wait days or weeks to give tests back and go over it. They give it back right away. So we have a number of, of standards or criteria, if you will, that indicate all of these, the active learning approach is the preferred way. And, you know, it, it goes back to ancient Chinese proverbs even, you know. I, you know, I see and I remember, or I, or I see and I do and I understand. Uh, some, yeah, the old Confucius. Confucius, yeah, right? Um, it's pretty much said if, I, if I'm doing it myself and pretty actively involved, I'm going to really understand and be able to do it in the future. Uh, yes, and I would argue that the SAT approach demands because it's performance based. We write objectives that say the verb says do this, do that, that we should be doing this. We are doing it when it comes to OJT. I mean, it's a no-brainer, right? It says, the objective says, do the task. We bring them in, we show them how to, we demo the task. They do it. The student practices till he feels comfortable with it. That's hands-on active learning. Where we fall down is we don't take that same principle into the classroom when we're teaching what we call cognitive objectives. We say, oh, well, they don't need to do that. They just need to know that. And I would argue for them to know it, have them do it. it in the classroom, with the instructor, with other students, where they have plenty of time to practice. What, what are some, we're just in an interview setting, this will be eventually played as a podcast to an audio receiver. There's no video. 
where are some resources or can you you know what's the tool in the toolbox for the nuclear trainer who eventually listens to this podcast and says well it's all very interesting with Armstrong um, now what now what do I do if we want to do some active learning or activate the learning right here um, places they can go things they can do to to do what we're ta- just talking about here well Lots of lots of resources on the internet. I'll give one right now that I know of, which you uh, you are aware of. We've talked about Clayton State University down in Georgia has a database of active learning strategies. Not all are suitable for the nuclear training world, but many of them are. If if folks go to ClaytonState.edu, www.claytonstate.state.edu, that's all one word. Um, They'll find a link. They'll have to hunt around because I don't know what the exact link is to the database, but if they search around that site, they'll find a database of active learning strategies where they can bring it up and they'll see something like, say, reciprocal peer questioning. After uh, an instructor has, say, presented for 15 minutes some information, typical lecture style with a PowerPoint even, 15 minutes goes by, which is about 15 to 20 minutes. We know from research is about the time students start to wane and start not to pay attention. Stopping point, turn to your neighbor, write down three questions related to the material you just learned, and quiz each other. And then the instructor brings everybody back as a group. Let's hear some of your questions. What did you ask your peer? How did he answer? And now suddenly you've taken a fairly lecture, straightforward, cognitive objectives, and you've involved students where they've created questions on the material, quizzed their partner, hopefully talked to each other about whether the answer was right or wrong, mm-hmm. and the instructor's there all the whole time moving around the room, circulating and facilitating and listening and making sure he's hearing what needs to be said. Um, so that database has all kinds of suggestions like that that people can incorporate very quickly. Into their into their training. Well, that's a good one. Very concrete. Um, I take it that if you simply Googled active learning, you'd get quite a few responses. Some obviously, like everything with Google or Yahoo, uh, some useful, some not. Are there any noted authors? Are there any textbooks that instructional technologists or other eager trainers ought to put in the? company collection or you know, go to the boss and say, I want to buy this, a couple of copies of this to put it in the library to act as a you know, support document. Yes, there's numerous ones. One that comes to mind right away, and I cannot think of the author's name, but I can think of the title. The book is called Telling Ain't Training. Oh, Harold Stolovich. There you go. Telling Ain't Training and very, Training Ain't Performance. Very famous book now. It's been out for a few years. Actually saw... A, Thank you for rem- reminding me of the author's name. I actually saw the author at a training conference some years ago in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, true to form, had a session that was <laughs> active learning. We were all involved doing stuff in, the, in his little 50-minute session or whatever. Um, great book. Great great resource. And there are, I mean, there are tons. We, we could perhaps follow up, you and I, and uh, put some up on, the we- on your website. Uh, show down, notes down we can add and some show, notes, show notes for the podcast we can add some uh, some appropriate uh, URLs for, URLs uh, and textbooks that people can just go right to your site and, and 
and find them. And hey, maybe you can even link to Amazon.com where they can go right and get the book. And I know. Maybe I, you get I, a residual, Gary. An affiliate, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I, I've actually done. I, I sponsored a, a workshop that had Harold Stolovich come, and uh, I was I looked up in my attic, and many years ago, or quite a few, any more than ten. I had gotten a huge handbook called The Handbook of Human Performance, edited by Harold Stolovich, and he kind of laughed when he came because I said, look, I've got this very old textbook that you edited that's classic. Would you mind autographing it for me? I think he was kind of flattered. I said, we go way back. I, when I introduced him to the crowd, I said, Harold and I go way back. And I held up the volume and said, I paid good U.S. money for this. Um, many years ago and was using it as a Bible for some culture change in a corporation at, at a time when this stuff was not as much in parlance as it is. We had a good laugh. But his new stuff is, yeah, those books are some of ASTD's top sellers. American yes. Society of Training and Development, I think, is the publisher, the actual publisher of the books, and they do very, very well. There's another organization, uh, ASTD's a great one. There's also, um, is it called Training for Performance Improvement? I'm trying to think of the name of that uh, other organization very similar to ASTD. I don't know. And I think that's what it's called. I think it's called Training for Performance Improvement. I think if somebody Googles that, they'll find it. And they also have a whole list of resources on, uh, on this subject, um, among many others. Uh, certainly want to thank you for subjecting yourself to the microphone for low these minutes. And I want to thank you for, for having me giving me the privilege of being your first official podcast. That is true. This will go out as the trainer's trough uh, zero, zero, 001. And so it will. Um, I'm at 29 minutes, 43 seconds. I'm really close to a half an hour. It's, I, I want to do a little, uh, you know, beat a uh, reserved retreat here, finish up appropriately. One of the things most podcasters do is that they indicate right in the very beginning of the show how you can get in touch with them. I currently don't have a forum or a telephone feedback number, and I'm going to try and remedy that as I get a little more sophisticated here. What I do have is a mail address that's specifically for the website. I can be reached by email, and I would love to hear from you and hear, get your email comments about what you liked, what you didn't like, what I can do better, the plus deltas. The email address is bigpig, that's uh, B-I-G-P-I-G at trainerstrough.com. One word, bigpig at trainerstrough.com. Yep, that's it. That's me. Snorky the pig is my mascot. Um, you can see the pig theme here. I'll tell you more about that in the next podcast. Um, I think we got some good stuff today. If you look at the show notes, uh, if you go to the website and look at the show notes, I do have listings uh, pretty much for everything that Jim mentioned in there, Howard Stolovich, Clayton State University in Georgia. I think that the organization he was trying to remember is the International Society for Performance Improvement. I think that ISPE, uh, which is an organization that Harold is very involved with as well, Harold Stolovich. Um, I'll double-check that, and if that is the case, I'll get that in the show notes as well. I may not – I have got it here. And I'm doing this in my basement at 1230 in the morning, so um, it's um, not the kind of thing that I can – I don't have a wireless link set up for the computer I'm using, so I can't check on it right now. But it'll, it'll add something to put in the show notes. 
So with a final thank you for taking the time to listen to this, to spending a half hour of your life to, to listen to the podcast, uh, again, comments at bigpig at trainerstrough.com would certainly be welcome. And um, I'd like to make the program something for all of us. So definitely let me know. And with no further ado, I'm, uh, I'm going to fade away until the next time. Thanks for listening. Powered by Cast Blaster.